If you listen to the show regularly, you know I'm a fan of data and analytics, and the analytics are telling me that you like it when I talk to other people who disagree. So we're going to go round two of civil disagreement discussion with Mr. Nathan McDowell. That starts right now. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Welcome into this edition of the Corey Act Show. Glad to have you with us wherever you are listening. SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcast. For you youngsters who do the streaming, we are now on Spotify. We are everywhere. And it's highly appreciated where you listen. My name is Corey Truax, securing the blessings of liberty since 1986. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. We meet at Greenville High School in downtown Greenville. We'd love to have you there any given Sunday morning. Uh, It usually takes an episode of my show to get to four digits and streams and downloads a good month, maybe five weeks. Uh, We had on Nathan McDowell from Clemson University uh, to talk about faith and reason, and we got there in like 10 days. Uh, and I got a lot of good feedback from you, the listener. And so uh, when you give good feedback, we want to reward that by giving you more of what you want. Uh, and so then welcome back to the show, Mr. Nathan McDowell. It's great to be back. Glad you are here. So we're going to talk this time not about faith and reason, but some places in which we're, we differ on some po- political policy. Uh, so that it'll be a good time. One of, the, one of the big topics on people's minds right now is the Supreme Court justice that's about to be uh, put into place, Brett Kavanaugh. And for folks on the left, my political opposite— that's, that concerns them primarily about Roe versus Wade. Now, I think you can be super pro, pro-choice, like super pro-abortion, and also be anti-Roe, because Roe versus Wade is just a garbage legal decision. has nothing to do with abortion in the end. You can be pro-abortion against that decision. So we'll skip over the Roe versus Wade part and go straight to the abortion issue. Uh, so how have your views on it evolved over time? Okay, so originally I was pretty conservative. So at that time, you know, conservative doctrine goes pretty closely with Christian doctrine. I was a Christian at the time too, and so I was very against abortion. Um, but and it just didn't seem like a women's right issue at all. You know, I think it's like it's really it's about life. Um, and I've continued with that up until recently and being exposed to some of my very intelligent liberal friends on debate team. And I've come to see that I think women's rights is definitely a relevant aspect of this as life is as well. So the immediate thing for any pro-life, you actually probably know what a pro-life immediately says to that. That the way we think about this is not a, women's, a woman's right because we're talking about a different human altogether. So what is the, what's the response to that? Right. So I think the names of the position already kind of assume, you know, some of the conclusions, right? right. So you have pro-choice, and I think, you know, in a general sense, we're all pro-choice. We think individuals should have choice, and on the other side, you have pro-life, and I think we're all pro-life as well. So it really, I think, takes it to what in my mind are the two big questions, which is at what point does the life begin, and then once we decide at what point that life begins, what, how do we weigh that with the mother's right to choose? So uh, let let me go to the second one and the first one. My syllogism on that second one, uh, how do we weigh that with a mother's right to choose? It is this clear, and you can tell me if you disagree. If we are talking about a human life, no no justification for abortion is possible. And if we are talking about human, if we aren't talking about human life, no justification for abortion is even necessary. Do you object to that syllogism? I do object to that syllogism to some degree. Now, I do think... um, there are some people who say it doesn't matter if it's a human life. Uh, it's still the woman's choice, and I, I would say that goes a little bit too far, but I do still think it's a a complicated relationship for a couple of reasons. So usually the way I've heard it divided out before is you have at what point is it human, and I guess you would say from fertilization it's human. You know, It's not animal. It's a human. Um, at what point is it alive, and then at what point does it have personhood? So from what I heard you saying, it sounds like the moment that it's human and alive, it has personhood as well. Um, I think where it gets complicated is that even if it is alive, there are situations in which the woman didn't necessarily voluntarily choose to have that life, situations where that life puts her own life at risk, and throughout most of pregnancy, that baby is completely dependent on her for its survival. That's true. I wanted to separate those two things out. There was one, uh, she didn't, there, and there's a, t- a situation in which a woman didn't want to be pregnant and she finds herself. That's an act of sexual violence. The uh, uh, And then might be of detriment to the mother's health. So those are two different moral standards. For the one where the woman did not want to be pregnant, the inherent 
that goes back to your what you said was the first question: Is it life or not? The lo- the logical conclusion is: If it is life, the fact that it was unwanted doesn't change it. Just because it was a person that doesn't want to be is, is not is undesired. It doesn't mean you get to kill that person. If it's a person, does it? And so that gets, does that have to get to the question then is, are we talking about a human? Right. So I, I track with what you're saying, but I also think the underlying assumption there is that life has infinite value, which okay. I don't think we necessarily act that way when we function. I mean, in a certain sense, we put our lives at risk every day by getting in a car, you know, but we find that like moving around and working or whatever we're doing has some value. So I think that for me, I tend to be pragmatic and utilitarian about things. And even if you define the baby as alive, if you would have to put up that baby for foster care or take care of it, and either of those situations is going to be very bad, you know, it's going to be very traumatic for the mother. I don't think necessarily that that life is as relevant because I guess even if you define it as life, for me, the fundamental issue is can it feel pain? Is it conscious? And can it live on its own and so even if you use the word life i think that's getting down to like the core of what the fundamental issues are for me so i'm trying to uh, find a way to make succinct what i think you just said because i want to make sure i'm understanding you correctly that humanity becoming human partly is dependent on whether you are independent versus dependent whether you are conscient conscience that you're alive are, do those things make a human? Or right. Part of what make a human? So by my definition, those are the key things that do make a human. And so even if you want to use the word life, I'm not opposed to that, but I just try and avoid a linguistic you know, debate about what exactly is life and just get to the core of what, what matters. You know, under this subset of life or whether we include it in the subset of life, what matters? And for me, that's pain, self-awareness, things of that nature. So I have to take you to the end of life now just to see for consistency. Uh, so when the old person stops understanding that there's a tomorrow uh, and can't feel pain, are, are you then in, in a consistent way, we can kill that person? Right. So, I mean, I'm for, I think that there does definitely come an issue into like, can they voluntarily make that choice? And like, if, if they still have some degree of autonomy, then I think we shouldn't be making that decision for them. But once they lose autonomy and from all from what we can tell, their quality of life is not that great. I do think that euthanasia and assisted suicide and all those options are... But go back to the pain thing. So why pain? Why is this one of the measurements of humanity? So I think that that for me i'm a utilitarian the way i tend to think about things so pain and pleasure are kind of the metric by which we measure the goodness or the wrongness of things and so if the organism that you know you're acting against can't feel pain i would question to what extent you can harm that organism okay at least i know where you're coming from I, I, it did reveal the fundamental difference of our worldview right right that there is humanity from the Christian perspective understanding that we're not coming from the same page right. uh, that well of course humans are different and they're valuable just just because they're human because the, we call Imago Dei in the image of God uh, and, so, and so therefore uh, it is different than any other thing you would harm even if it can't feel pain it's still human made in the image of God I think this might be the easiest thing to do I am going to make my affirmative case my pro-life affirmative case, and you pick me apart. Okay. You tell me where you think I'm being inconsistent and or wrong. Uh, The affirmative case is simply this. Uh, From the moment of fertilization, you get your own DNA strain. You get to have your own. You are not your mother. You are not your father. You are now amalgamation of the two. And that creation of a new DNA strain is what makes you alive and human. You are now an independent. Um, And then from there, if we we grant, and you don't have to grant the... uh, the presupposition that 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 thing is now a a separate human there is no logical place at which to cut well it was a it was a person at that second but this second it wasn't so even like the 20 week people or the pain people why did that one second from when they had a heart start beating that why that change it was always going to have a heart beating they start feeling pain so the affirmative case is you have your own dna strain you're different and nothing can take that from you Okay, so this is going to be a wide-ranging response. Great. But uh, first, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to your show about the science fiction author who came up with his 
unbeatable argument for abortion, which I agree that that was a ridiculous characterization. It's not unbeatable. But I do want to say first, I think you called them ethical games. I prefer to call them thought experiments. Okay. And this is kind of just a personal thing of mine. I really like thought experiments and they they take a lot of crap but the way i like to think about them is we are we are philosophically isolating variables in the way that's why it's an experiment in the way that a science is what we're trying to do is even if it's unrealistic like the trolley problem um which i like also as utilitarian (laughs) what we're trying to do is isolate variables so that in real world situations where there's multiple variables moving at once we can logically derive you know what is the right action to take here so i think his um his example reveals something important about intuitively how we view life so he sets up um if there's a burning building and there is a baby in that building and there are embryos in that building a thousand embryos you know whatever the number is you're always going to save the baby is what his argument is and then i think you said that doesn't say anything about the life of the organism right because there are situations where if we know someone and then it's a thousand people we don't know a lot of us will probably save the person that we don't know yeah so what i would say the difference is in his specific uh thought experiment or ethical game is that it's assuming all other things are equal right so the variable we're trying to isolate is whether or not this thing is alive or is it alive in the same way or in the same capacity where you value it equally so you brought in a new variable which certainly changes things um how do we know them? But in this scenario, you know, setters, paribus, all other things being equal, we don't know. And I think that at least reveals something fundamental about human intuition. And I'm going to also um, attack my side a little bit here and say, I think intuitively we know that embryos, and, and you can you know, push back if you disagree, but I think intuitively, if we're being intellectually honest, we know that embryos are not life. I think we also know that once the baby comes out of the womb and right before it comes out of the womb, that clearly is a life functioning in a way similar to, you know, how we function when we come out of the womb. And I think the issue is, as you pointed out, that a lot of points in between feel somewhat arbitrary. But we know that by the time it comes out, it's obviously a life. And we know that by the time, you know, just at the time of fertilization, it really doesn't seem like a life, at least not in the same way. So how do we how do we draw a definitive philosophically rigorous line about when is it a life so i want to respond really quickly to that we'll take a break come back and let you continue on that if you have more thoughts we certainly want to talk more about the abortion topic from two folks who disagree um so also in those ethical games or uh thought experiments i'm, I'm fine with calling them that thought experiments is ultimately that uh, the trolley game or any of his or the burning building thing it's a statement about you not about an objective truth. And so this, again, reveals something about worldview. So whatever you would decide to save means nothing about what you should do. It, just, it reveals something about your own character, not what is objectively true above the embryos and the, uh, and, and the baby. Uh, we'll be back with more in just a minute with Nathan McDowell. We'll talk about abortion, hopefully get to gun control, mass shootings, uh, and a whole lot more today. So stick with us for the remainder of the Corey Truag Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us. Please connect to the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also share the show and get the show on demand. SoundCloud.com slash Corey Truax, CoreyTruax.com, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, lots of places to get it. Hope you will. And I think if there is an episode you are going to share, it will be this one. And with that, we want to welcome back to the show Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello there, sir. Hello. So we're going to let you continue on your affirmative pro-choice case and I'll have some response to it as we go. Okay, so if we're thinking about the nature of life, we don't see people up in arms every time we mow our grass. And technically, you're killing you know thousands of blades of grass when you're doing that. So I think that we do have to consider, that's kind of where I was coming from, even if you want to call it life, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has a, it's a human life with the same ethical value uh, as a adult human or a child or a baby. So what I think we have to examine when we're looking at this question is, what makes us fundamentally human? Um, Obviously, animals can feel pain, but I do think that that is a a key source of ethical value is that you can feel pain. I also think that being self-sufficient and being able to exist autonomously is not necessarily important in you being alive, although that is part of the biological definition of life. But I think at that point, you've removed yourself from the dependency of the mother. And at that point, the women's rights issue kind of shifts out of this a little bit. Um, And then I think the third thing is consciousness and all and that's that's a little bit of a uh we don't know what consciousness is necessarily but once the cortex starts to develop that's when these higher order behaviors that really make us human start to develop i can't remember who said it but i feel like someone it was not scientific it was philosophy said consciousness is knowing there's a tomorrow 
that's when you your your conscience win. You have that concept uh, that right. there's actually going to be a moment that it's going to be different than this moment, and there's maybe even a moment that I'm not going to exist. So, I do have some responses to that. But anything else you want to finish there? Well, yeah. So it's Good. just those things. Um, happen to coincide at this point of 24 weeks usually so at that point that's when I would define uh, the baby as alive um, and prior to that why I think the woman's right to life or, or the right to choose supersedes uh, potential life because we do have to recognize that potential life has some value as well is I do think that at that point it is her body and I think it's important to conceptualize like this is something this is an organism that's growing inside her body and in some way even if there is another life we are talking about decisions that she's capable of making with her life this is why I like talking to you because you say things like no one else on the left says them, or I, mean, I don't know if you're quote on the left but folks that disagree with me on this topic uh, so at least you have come up with some ethical metric of when a life begins outside of hands off my body. Right. That's just, that's, that's emotional screaming and it has nothing to do with, that, with, with evidence or thought. And so you've come up with, all right, well, consciousness, feeling pain, like there's, let's come up with some kind of metric and that's what you've come up with. So you go 24 weeks. And so let me ask you this question. Legislatively, state of South Carolina comes along with a 25-week ban. After 25 weeks, there's no abortion for any other reason but life of the mother, and you can add rape and incest if you would. I would not add those two. Okay. Uh, but for, except for uh, life of the mother, rape, incest, 25 weeks and after, where do you stand? Yeah, I think that is something close to what I would agree with. So then, I, the question I can use, you can usually decimate my opponent within, <laughs> is what happened between the 23 weeks and six days what happened on the seventh day? What you're saying is consciousness, pain, and there was one more? Consciousness, pain, and viability, being able to okay. survive. So let me ask you this question then. Uh, as medical science continues to progress, we are go we're not 10 years away from a child being 16 weeks in gestation, being able to survive outside the womb. I mean, it used right now, funny thing about viability is it's very relative. In the Philippines, you are not viable to 38 weeks. They can't keep you alive in the Philippines. They can't keep you alive. It, only in the Western privileged world can you be viable at 24 weeks. And so ethically, is a child v differently viable when they're in a place that medical science can't keep them alive? No, uh, I don't think so. I think that that would be somewhat arbitrary. Uh, and so, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm not super familiar with the techniques uh, to keep a baby alive and how that works and how those differ and like what would be reasonable to define viability as. But I will say for me, that's more of an issue where um, women's rights just stop being relevant. So I would say my definition of life depends more on the pain and the consciousness aspect and those <laughs> higher order mental processes. And I think that's just more where um, the women's rights issue starts to take a little bit of a lesser role. Um, sorry, so 20, the 20 week ban though that we have in uh, in South Carolina, this is you'd be okay with if it was, if it was 24 weeks, but 20 week is too far for you. I think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, did you have one more thing you wanted to do on? That? Yeah, I would. I would like to ask you. So even if the mother's life is at risk, let's say let's say we throw them all together, right? The mother's life is at risk, and uh, she's been raped. In that situation, you still think she should carry the baby to term? Only for the life of the mother. Um, for the okay. yeah, so if, she, if it is going to, um, I think it's called a tubal pregnancy is the most common version of this, where she will die if she has this kid. I mean, right. there's just very little chance of her living. At that point, we're having to choose life for life, um, and I'm pro life, so I'm pro the life of that mother. Okay, uh, and she must make. I can't imagine what that would be like having to make that call. Uh, you know, especially I start thinking. I actually know of a situation like this with a, a mother who already had three kids. This was her fourth kid. And the ethical conundrums up there being, do my three kids need me? Yes, they do. And so the cost of that might have to be this other, this other life. Uh, so, yeah, my only exception is life of the mother because I can't punish a kid for having been conceived by rape the way that I see it, right? Um, I, can't, I can't punish a kid because he, he or she was conceived by incest. It wasn't their fault. Um, I'm, I'll, if we've we got to punish somebody, let's chemically castrate the, uh, the rapist if we have to if we punish somebody for what happened there. Um, okay, so I think I think we are we have we explored all of the abor the abortion topic. If I could make one last point, please do briefly. Yeah, um, I think that another important thing to consider is um, 
a lot of pro-life people will say, well, why not adoption? Why not just put the baby up for adoption? Which I think is a very reasonable response, and I wish more people would do that. But I think it is also important to recognize in terms of quality of life that the foster care system is very broken right now. And a lot of kids end up in abusive homes and have higher rates of uh, mental health issues and just tend to be more impoverished and have less job success. And just there's there's a lot of issues with the foster care system that I agree do pale somewhat in comparison to life. But I do think that that's just a relevant aspect I wanted to bring up. Sure. And I, I would respond to that as I often do. I'm not going to be pithy and like I sometimes I'm a jerk. I'm not going to be a <laughs> jerk uh, that hard life is better than death. Right. So if the, for our paradigm, that child can be dead or can be in a hard system. I'm going to take the hard system and then try to fix the hard system. Uh, and so it, it would not be a justification for me to make abortion more and more legal. I'm going to give one last thought on this, then you have the last word if you want it, and we'll move on. Um, ultimately, on abortion, by the way, I do think it's going to be, believe it or not, science that solves this. I think science is going, medical science is going to progress so greatly that more and more people are going to see what's in the womb through 4D. More and more people are going to, not 4D, 3D, uh, whatever those are called, sonograms maybe? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're going to see more and more what's happening in the womb. It's not going to be a mystery anymore. I actually sort of feel bad for the judges that decided Roe versus Wade because we couldn't see any of that. We had no idea what was going on in the womb. And so there was not enough data to make a decision. Science is going to end up, I think, making abortion obsolete, uh, even through through better birth controls, through, uh, through, uh, I was going had another, another idea there that's, oh yeah, again, viability for, uh, for, for babies to grow up outside of their mother's womb. I think essentially science makes it irrelevant. That's not going to solve the ethical conundrum that we all have been through, right. but I think they're going to make it irrelevant. That's my final abortion thought. Any more thoughts on that one, sir? Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting point that you made. Um, in my opinion, and my friend and I argue about this a lot, I don't think that science offers any moral values explicitly, which I think you would agree with too. It just offers yeah. us raw information for yes. moral capacity. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see as we can track very specifically, you know, the levels, you know, of the baby's development, you know, how we philosophically resolve the issues of what is it to be a human and a person and what does it mean to be alive. Very good. Uh, one of the th- things I get on my side, we get accused of, of you're pro-life, but you sure are pro-gun, which makes you seem like you're pro-death. <laughs> so that's well, where we will head next. I don't know if you've ever heard of a podcast. Uh, it's out of Brooklyn, New York from Gillette Media. Um, it's from a woman who used to host a show on Australia's version of NPR, like they're, bro- they're, they're broadcasting. It's called Science Versus. You ever heard of Science Versus? Yeah. Okay. So she did a show on guns, and I think we need to have the discussion the way in which she did. Because her discussion was, I'm not talking about rights or Second Amendment. I'm talking about the data on how do you deal with gun violence. So I'm happy to get into Second Amendment stuff with you. I doubt you want to. Right, that it's more about gun violence and how do you go about it. Um, so I would, uh, I'd start here with my affirmative position, and you can give me your own if you like. Um, I'm essentially a uh, gun rights absolutist. Uh, if I were going to err on on one side or the other, I would err on the side of having civilians have weapons you might not want that people don't want them to have. If we're if we're going to have to have an error, I'm going to err on the side of liberty and freedom for people to have them. So then, just evidentially. I start to look at the numbers of, uh, we just have more guns. Well, we have more guns than ever. And the actual gun violence number's down. We are killing each other and hurting each other with guns less than we ever have. And so I, I just, that easily, that indirect correlation, more guns, less gun violence, makes me go, I know this, we don't got a gun problem. There's some th- something else. So that's where I would start in your response to that. Okay. Um, so... I think kind of implicit in there was that gun violence is maybe somewhat of a mental health issue, maybe not that specifically, but something else. So in regards to the mental health claim, which you didn't make, but a lot of conservatives do make, I think um, the statistic is 22% of individuals who, you know, commit a mass shooting or, you know, some act of violence like that have mental health issues. So that that, that is a significant chunk, you know, that's important to consider. That's higher than, you know, the proportion of mental health issues in the population. But, you know, it doesn't explain all of it. Um, what you just mentioned is difficult because a lot of the studies I've read have shown that you know locally, if you raise gun control, um, and this depends on what you know what specific state you're talking about, what specific policy, but if you raise gun control, it does tend to lower gun violence. And I would say when you're looking at it holistically, gun violence is decreasing just because we're moving towards a safer and safer society. But I would say that uh, lack of gun tr- control is hindering, hindering that natural uh, arc of progress. Help me understand this from your perspective. So I look at, a, I look at high gun control places. They're very high, they're, 
I mean, Chicago, D.C., these areas. I look at Vermont's a weird one to me. Vermont, one of the most liberal states, one of the highest gun per person states because it's very rural and very rural people have a lot of guns. Right. So this is a weird one for me. I can't stand guns. They're loud. They smell bad. I don't like guns. This is all about uh, just, I guess, the right to them for me. So how do you account for that? How do you account for the Vermont having high guns, Chicago having having gun control that's so heavy. Right. So I'm going to use a conservative argument to my advantage here. Um, One of the things that conservatives talk about is how uh, when you pass gun control, you're just going to leave guns in the hands of bad people, which I think certainly, you know, that's theoretical, but I think that certainly has some truth to it. So I think the issue is when you have specific states, specific cities, you know, when guns are not banned globally, what you do is you reduce gun access for the good people in that area, but they can get guns from a lot of different states, from a lot of different places, and from a lot of different locations. So I think you are exhibiting the very, the conservative problem when we try and value states' rights and say just let states do what they want with guns, and the fact that when global gun control is not passed, people are still going to have access to guns, and then people who don't take a lot of effort, who are probably the people who aren't going to commit violence, you know, they're just living their lives, are going to be the ones who are victimized by that. Okay, so is that, did you just account for that by, well, yeah, you had high gun control, but they just went across the river to Indiana, got some guns and came back. Right, so I think that gun control will only be effective if it happens at a very widespread level, at a federal level. And if I can pull in, you know, other countries have different cultures, but if we bring in Japan, Japan um, has the strictest gun laws just about of any nation, you know, that's, that's, you know, fairly, you know, somewhat liberalized, you know, obviously super authoritarian regimes are an exception. Um, uh, they have background checks, extensive tests like mental health examinations, and you have to retake your test every three years. You have to store it in a specific location, um, and they have five to ten deaths by gun violence per year, which is a remarkably low number. So gun control can work if it's wide sweeping and successful. Now, obviously, the United States, it would take forever to ever get it to that point, but I do think it is an example of gun control can be successful. Yeah, I, I appreciate the, the caveat there on effectiveness, because where we have, I believe we do have more guns in circulation than humans. I think there are more guns in circulation in the United States than people, or it's very <laughs> close. It's a very, It's a very close correlation between the two. And so the idea of mass confiscation and all that, I, I don't think it's realistic. I right. Don't, I don't think it's a real. So if we're only talking about effectiveness, right. then I don't, I don't think that's one of the, uh, the solutions. Do you have things that you think should, a state, a city, federally, that you think this should be a thing we do? This is a policy we should implement? Yeah, so I think that people should not be able to buy guns at gun shows because that seems just kind of like you, you can get guns at gun shows and kind of that's a big loophole that I think should not be there. Um, I also think that, you know, banning bump stocks would be a good idea. And I do think that mass gun confiscation is not necessarily realistic. I think we can take gradual steps towards that point and, you know, not do it overnight. And then lastly, I think just making sure that background checks are actually enforced and, you know, the laws we have are being enforced appropriately. So on the gun show one, here's my response. Okay. (laughs) I don't... I'll give you my paradigm. If, maybe you've heard me say this before. When someone brings up any restriction to liberty, because this is a restriction to liberty. It's saying you aren't free to right. have this gun. The burden I place upon them is, why would that help? What what evidence do you have from history that well, we could have pre- prevented this? And so, for example, the gun show people, the, the, the data does show NRA people, gun owners that are going to, the people that go to gun shows, these, these are the people that aren't, aren't like us. Like, they're out people who go shoot at animals and stuff. They're the ones that don't use guns violently. And so, like, the people that go to the gun shows aren't the people that shoot people. So, I, I don't know, like, i tell you this. There aren't gang members showing up, right? There's not, this is not who's showing up to the gun show. I know those customers. They don't go out and kill people. I just don't know, I don't know why it's going to help. Okay. So, th- that's one. Two, mm-hmm. bump stocks, I think I'm in agreement. Um, because a bump stock is a... It's an artificial way to do something we already banned, right? So we banned automatic weapons. Uh, the bump stock makes an, a semi-automatic an automatic, so it's just a loophole right. someone found. found. Um, on Then gun confiscation, I will always 100% just, because a matter of liberty, this becomes right. not a matter of effectiveness to me. Okay. It becomes a matter of principle. Okay. And the final one on background checks. So the background check system, I'm sure, could be tightened, but... It, it's worked in some cases. For example, Adam Lanza, the, is that Newtown? The Newtown shooter. He failed a background check. Like it, 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 it worked. Uh, there's, 
and then he went and got his parents' guns. Right. Right. He, he just went. He went and did that. That instead. I would need to see the person who went through the pro. I, I, I want to know what it would have prevented. Not even just a mass shooting. Like what? What would that have prevented that person to to, to getting a gun? Um. So that's my standard. And be, beyond that, the, the, I don't think I have any policy prescription. I guess we could get a little bit more broadly to mass shootings. I I don't like making policy based on mass shootings because they actually are really rare. Right. It feels like trying to make policy on the exception, not the rule. Uh, you're more likely to... When you die in America by gun, someone you know, usually low-income situations, that's just the, that's the demographic, killed you. That's what happened. It wasn't in a mass shooting. So wh- do you think there needs to be something on mass shootings? or? Right. So 2%, I think, of shootings are mass shootings. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very low number. Um, the... Utility, I think, of mass shootings is, for me, and like I said, I tend to approach things from a utilitarian, pragmatic perspective. I tend to be skeptical about rights. I understand their utility is a useful fiction. Um, But I do think that mass shootings illustrate and are very evocative and can help us weigh how much is the right to own a gun and the Second Amendment. Do we value that over, you know, these deaths and the ruining of many people's lives? And maybe maybe we do in some cases, but I think that it's just a good illustration of the harm that it can cause if you buy that more gun control is going to help more people. Gotcha. The, that is where I would make a, I do make my value judgment. When it, I'll say it this way. Freedom is dangerous. Liberty is dangerous. You can choose to be 100% safe. You will not be free. Someone can someone can ensure safety for you by making sure you're not a free person. I'm going to choose dangerous liberty, dangerous safety, and I can't make everyone else do that. But I highly, I would argue for it. I would right. encourage people. I'm encouraging you towards go towards dangerous uh, liberty. I don't think I have anything else on gun control. Anything else for you? Yeah. So if we want to move, I think it would be helpful to shift into the right-based conversation a little bit, if you'd like to. Um, So, because I think freedom, you know, is is we start moving into that that rights area. So I think you would agree that under certain circumstances, you do not choose dangerous liberty. For example, I mean, I'm assuming you want a police force and an army, and you know, there is a certain threat to life that uh, supersedes the right to liberty. also, I would say, in terms of people who say you have the Second Amendment, it protects gun rights, I think you would also agree that those gun rights are not unlimited, right? Sure. So that does not mean you can have any gun that you want. So unless if, so th- I think there's a pragmatic debate, and I appreciate it because I do think it's an empirical issue that people, too, you know, get too hot under the collar about. It's an empirical <laughs> question. You know, how are we going to save the most lives, I think, yeah. is really the ultimate question. Yeah, the way that, that radio host on, uh, on Science Versus did it was the way to do this. I mean, ultimately, I'm glad to use the Second Amendment argument in my advantage because we are in a constitutional republic that's supposed right. to be adhering to the Constitution. But where intellectual people get together, it, it is a good thing to just start talking about pragmatics. Because here's the thing that's true. I get sad at shootings. I don't like that they happen. Right. I do want to find policy that addresses these things. We've got to take our uh, last break here. When we come back, I think we're going to get into some th- thoughts on intersectionality, maybe Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement. Come back for more of the Corey Truax Show with Nathan McDowell in just a moment. Welcome back in for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. We've been talking with Mr. Nathan McDowell. Good morning, sir. Great to be here. We're going to send it right back to you because we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter in just a moment. This is the professional broadcaster over here. Can't say the words. <laughs> uh, but we over the break, uh, we, we started the show with an abortion talk. You can go back and get that on demand at CoreyTruax.com. Uh, but there was one more thought you thought of during the break, so have at it on your the final abortion thought. Yeah, so I think that a lot of Christians believe that you can't be con- Christian and liberal, or at least you can't be ideologically consistent and be Christian and liberal. Um, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the key issue is really abortion. I think other issues can uh, mesh with Christianity pretty easily, but abortion would be the primary issue that creates that block. It'd be the first that one that comes up. Okay, yeah. So what I wanted to say in response to that, I think the verse that's typically quoted, and if you want to fill in here and build up Sure. The argument, let me know, um, is, you know, God knit me together in my mother's womb. And so that means that in the womb you're alive from the moment of conception. Sure, that's one. That is definitely one. One, okay. I do want to build it a little bit further. Yeah, please do. Because the Christian worldview do, would start back in Genesis. Even for the Christian who doesn't think Genesis is literal, the and for the Jewish person, I could speak for Ben Shapiro here on this, that the pro-life movement starts with made in the image of God. Right. To, to made with God's hands. And so, yeah, the knitted in the mother's womb thing is ultimately poetry. 
I, I might use it in a biblical argument, okay. and most Christians do. Yeah. Uh, but I start back with humans are different because they're made in the image of God, and so that, that's what we would say for, for why we are pro-life. Okay, so I think that still doesn't directly answer the question of when are, when are you human? You know, I think that you could say that, yes, you're made in the image of God and that that's important, but at what point, you know, are you a human being made in the image of God? And it also talks about how God wrote you in the book of life, you know, for you knew from the beginning of time that you were going to be written in the book of life. So God has been an active role in the process the entire time. We've known we were going to be made in the image of God, and I don't think that that directly gives us a definition of life in between conception and, you know, being born. Um, and so what I would also like to say is that when you look at Adam and Eve, when they came alive, it says that God breathed the breath of life into them, right? And Holy Spirit, the word for Holy Spirit, the Hebrew word for Holy Spirit is ruach, which is also, you know, kind of means life force and breath at the same time. So it seems that like your life force comes from breath and a baby takes its first breath, you know, once it's out of the womb. Now, I don't think that that's a legitimate argument for abortion necessarily, but what I'm trying to say is I don't think the Bible directly gives us an answer. And when you interpret the Bible with a certain looseness, um, to come to the conclusion that abortion is wrong biblically, I think you can, uh, with that same looseness, come up with an argument that says that abortion is justified biblically. And so I, I don't think the Bible directly comments on it, and I'm obviously an atheist, so take that into account, but sure. yeah. that's what I just what I, what I want to sure. say. Sure, I, I understand where you're coming from. I would only respond to this. We'll move on to, uh, to, to Black Lives Matter as our next uh, discussion here. That the, 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 the traditional, historic, biblical understanding still going back to Genesis, I, I think what you just brought was our original point, but humanity. That the Bible might have a different definition of humanity and life. I, w I would just go back to uh, where we, I think we just go back to where we started. Like, in the end, you are you because D DNA makes you. Uh, so, I get the point. I disagree with it, but it's, you, re you probably re represent somebody who's listening right now, and so they, they're, and they're glad you said it. Um, all right, so uh, let's do this Black Lives Matter part. Um, so it's been a big movement in the United States, especially with highly publicized shootings of uh, highly publicized shootings of usually black men is what the ones that get publicized. Ultimately, where I've gone on Black Lives Matter is I get in trouble sometimes on the right because I tend to agree with them that there is. They're experiencing the world differently than I'm experiencing the world. And the way I'm experiencing the world is generally a little better because of where we are. Uh, but that tactically, they are ruining, their, they're ruining themselves. That tactically, when you shut down highways, tactically, when you break things, tactically, when you mess stuff up, you're not doing a very good job for your movement. That's where I've been on Black Lives Matter. Okay. Um, so first, I'm going to respond not to things you said, but to some general criticisms sure. of Black Lives Matter. So I think there's a form of... Um, an attack on saying that racism exists today. It's there's this form, this kind of colorblind ideology that it's racist to mention um, race in any way. So when you have a movement like Black Lives Matter, a lot of people are like, "That's racist." What about when we have and we see these counter movements? Which, if you these counter movements aren't necessarily the same, but when you look back to the civil rights movement, there were always there's always pushback and counter movements to minorities trying to fight for their rights. So we have to be careful. And if you feel oppressed, I think it's very difficult for you to just try and fight for something you know fight for your rights and fight for a better life and then have people constantly have counter movements coming back at you like blue lives matter and white lives matter i think the proper way to interpret black lives matter is you know we're just trying to support our cause because you know we are an underprivileged group. And that's also not saying other people are underprivileged. You know, when we have a charity that's specifically targeting tuberculosis, that's not saying that, you know, another disease is less prevalent, right? They've right. just chosen to focus on that issue. So I think the counter protests are um, problematic. Now, their tactics are sometimes violent. There has, I've looked for this, I haven't seen a lot of data on how frequently is it violent. But what I would say is it's a decentralized movement. And so we have to be careful about, you know, interpreting specific tactics that are done in local areas as the tactics of the entire group. And I would say that most of the time, their tactics are not violent and their methods are more amiable. Yeah, I actually don't think violence is a big issue inside Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It is more property destruction. Right. And uh, specifically, I remember in Greenville, they shut down 385 for a little while. And it just I wanted to find the leader and just say, who do you think you're winning? Why on earth do you think this is effective? Everyone's just mad at you. They just want to go home and have dinner with their family, and you're shutting down the highway. And they think it's a—they actually think they're proud of themselves. 
the, that that was the effectiveness. But in general, I think we're actually probably closer together uh, on this than maybe I am with my with a lot of my own uh, <laughs> ideological kindred. Uh, then m- this made me think of something. We're probably going to be on the same side of this too, so we'll move on. Kneeling during the national anthem. Where did you land on there? Did you think about that at all? Did you land somewhere on that? Yeah. So. First, I think that it's important to recognize symbols and what they mean. And I do think it's the case that we don't get to choose what symbols mean. Um, So when I was a conservative, uh, one of my arguments was if you are against the uh, Confederate flag, which I think I am against the Confederate flag, but if you are against the Confederate flag, the response to that is frequently, well, I... It doesn't. It means states' rights. It's, it's just me being proud of my country. It has nothing to do with slavery. So you see here trying to choose um, what do symbols mean. And I do think that's comparable to, I mean, the flag does stand for being proud for your country, and it also does stand for the sacrifices that the military has made. So you do have to be careful when you're protesting the flag, and I am sympathetic to that argument. Um, but I think as long as uh, they are trying to be careful there i mean and they said they have you know if you as long as you make the public declaration of course we're 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 proud of our country we're for the military we are specifically protesting we are using our platform to protest a way that we feel like our country has let us down and i think they made that message clear um and it was properly understood so i i certainly support kneeling as an ethical move and then from a legal perspective i think it's an egregious violation for just like start finding them yes so i mean that's a whole nother issue i think it's i think it's ethically right and then i think it's also it's you certainly should be allowed to whether or not you should or not is another thing but you should be allowed i th- i think i mostly agree with that i'm going to give you my position you tell me if you disagree anywhere um so one again this you're the one that walked in the door and said you were pragmatic right i'm about to get really <laughs> pragmatic in here uh I, again, I understand many of their point. I understand the point you're trying to make. Agree with a lot of it. Not all of it, but agree with a lot of it. Again, tactically, it was so weird to me that, wait, you're, you're protesting violence against black people by the police by kneeling in the national anthem? How did you connect that? How did you get there? That's a, it's just not, again, a pragmatic, it's not effective. It wasn't an effective way to make their point. So that, that was one. I thought it was like a dumb way to make a probably good point. Uh, third, yeah, I've, I don't think anyone should stop them. I think I do think NFL owners, ha- used to, that finding thing, I agreed with you for a minute, then it, it hit me. Uh, you do have an employer. You, you, whatever you do outside of work, go use your Instagram, go use your Facebook as an athlete to do what you want. But ultimately, you chose a, you chose a field that you do work for someone. And if that per the NFL probably shouldn't do any finding, but if, if an owner says... Everyone's staying in the locker room, or if I, you're not going to be on this team, you're fired or you're fined. I am okay with an owner doing that because you're an employee. That's how that works. I think I don't. I wish they wouldn't. I think the the owner was would do a wrong. Th- I don't. I shouldn't say wrong. He has a right to do it. It's just a dumb thing to do. I think it's a it's 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 bad. It's wrong headed. So that's right. I think you can find him if you're the owner. That's the only one. Are, any other thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I see where you're coming from there. Okay, cool. All right, then uh, moving on. It just hit me when we were talking about Black Lives Matter that that might be one more thing. Uh, let's hit this religious liberty question. Um, so I'm, a, same way I'm basically a Second Amendment absolutist, I'm a basically a religious liberty absolutist uh, and consistent, not just a Christian liberty absolutist. I'm a religious liberty absolutist. So we take these cases going to the Supreme Court right now. There is the case of the baker and the photographer and all the different people that are part of the wedding industry, wedding venues, who don't want to be involved in gay weddings and lesbian weddings. And they are being sued like crazy. Uh, I'm for them. I think you have a right to say to someone, not I won't serve you, but I won't serve your wedding. You can buy anything you want in this store, but I can't do the wedding. I think they have a right to do it. Your thoughts? Yeah, so it's a difficult question because obviously, you know, there are some beliefs that if they were religious beliefs cannot be acted on. And for example, you know, we don't allow polygamy anymore. So that's a religious belief, but there is a boundary where we do have to set societal lines. And maybe you disagree with this. I mean, you said you were an absolutist, but I do think there's a boundary where we have to set societal lines on religious freedom. Um, Obviously, if you're, you know, if you believe that, you know, all infidels need to to die or something like that, that's a boundary. So that obviously that's an extreme example, but just to say it can't be a completely absolutist interpretation. There are some limits to religious liberty. So with that, I think we have to get into a pragmatic examination of what rights are being denied and what rights are being supported. So specifically in the, um, the Baker case, 
And, you know, I don't, I'm not in his mind, but all he really had to do was just bake a cake, give them the cake, and then he would be done. You know, he didn't have to participate. He didn't have to say he supported gay marriage in any way. He didn't have to, like, I don't think that in any way you were violating his religious beliefs, at least not very strongly. On the other hand, I think that, you know, it would be very difficult for a gay couple who are not, you know, they're becoming more and more accepted, but still face, you know, lack of acceptance in some areas. Uh, For them to have to deal with that experience emotionally, I think would be very difficult for them. And I do think it's an example of discrimination that they should not have to deal with, which while I agree religious liberty is important and you do have the right to religious liberty, I think that is outweighed in this case, given the details of the situation. The situation specific there, there are other bakers. There, there's only, he only has one religious conscience. Uh, And so I would say to that couple, you have other options. He's not the only baker in town. Go get a cake somewhere else. And then specifically on that cake, uh, you say he didn't have to participate. I, I do feel like that's participating. He felt like, too, me doing anything to help your wedding happen is me condoning it. Now, we can disagree that I don't think it's condoning it, but, boy, I do. My conscience is okay. pricked by it. So I guess why? I would, I would ask why. I, why can't him baking the cake and then he says he doesn't believe it. How does baking a cake for the wedding logically mean he's also condoning it? Where's the connection? Sure, because I am now, this, this thing you are doing, I find morally wrong. You have to have a cake for it. Is it how you feel? I don't know why, why right. you make goods <laughs> to have a wedding. But me doing that helps you do it. Okay. I, I am I am now aiding you in this thing that I find morally wrong. I don't I can't I can't be a part of helping you do this at all. Okay. Uh, I think you brought up an important issue earlier, which is access. And I think this is what makes it difficult to have a logically consistent view of religious freedom. Um in the grand scheme of things, being denied a cake from one person is not necessarily a huge problem. In the grand scheme of things, if you couldn't get a cake anywhere, I think that starts to become a larger problem. I also think that we would agree that there is an issue if a black person was not served at a restaurant. Um, I think that that is a large issue, and maybe religious freedom doesn't necessarily come in there. Sure. But So I just think those are some examples of why it gets difficult. So I think that the key issue is it's not a problem when one person does it, but when it becomes widespread discrimination on the scale to where you lose access. Let's say this gay couple could not find a cake anywhere. At that point, I I do think it becomes a problem. So then the question is, that's just kind of an, that seems like an arbitrary metric, but I think intuitively we can agree at the point where they don't have access to parts of society that everyone does because of religious freedom, that that becomes a problem. Yeah, and so, I yes, at that point you have set up this question. Does religious freedom win... Or does sexual freedom win? Someone's got to lose here. Someone has to lose this freedom battle. Especially in our system, because we have enshrined religious liberty in the First, in the first Amendment. Religious liberty wins. It's specific to, uh, my religion is who I am at my core. Ultimately, your sexual attraction is important. It's not who you are at your core. It's not the center of who you are. Re- sexual identity or, sec- or se- sexual genetics, whatever... These are activities you are taking. A wedding is an activity. A a cake is an option. My conscience is not. And so you are, I think you're correct in setting up a conflict. We're going to have to pick. Religious liberty is going to win or sexual liberty is going to win. But I'm taking religious liberty 100% of the time on that conflict. Any other comments on that? Okay, cool. Um, All right, so we only have a couple minutes left. So I, I have an idea. If you have some extra time, maybe we'll stick around and do a little podcast only uh, for, uh, for for radio purposes. But let me incur- – first of all, thank you for doing this again. Of course. This is fun. to do it. Um, you're about to start your junior year of college? Yes. So, I don't know. When you have three seconds of uh, of, uh, <laughs> of uh, open time, maybe I'll come to you in our our fancy mobile Corey Truex show studio and get something going here. Um, maybe – are you into this midterm election at all? Does this intrigue you? I have not paid a lot of close attention. No. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not intrigued by it. But maybe something will come up here in the in the news. But generally, I tell you, I like talking about ideas more than I like talking about what's in the news. I right? agree. The bigger things. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, uh, "Small-minded people, small-minded people talk about people. Medium-minded people talk about events, but large-minded people talk about ideas." And that's what I think we're doing. We don't talk about events. We don't talk about people. We just talk about ideas. Uh, so one more, one more time, thanks to you. And then let me encourage this. CoreyTruex.com. 
SoundCloud.com slash Corey Truax, iTunes, Apple Podcast, Spotify. Truly, I've given you so many ways to get this show. It is inexcusable that you are not listening to this broadcast. Uh, and so please share it with others as well. And if you have comments, you have your own topics you want uh, covered. Maybe you have someone you want on the show that disagrees. You can uh, encourage me to do that. Uh, just just contact the show any, any of the ways through social media. And please do share this show as well. If you want more content like this, I believe we're going to do a little bit more here on the podcast version. So if you're listening on WLFJ, Christian Talk 660 on Saturday morning, go find the podcast in all those places I mentioned, and you'll be getting more like this. We'll come back next week and do uh, typical news and then some sports. Until next time, everybody, peace and love. All right, welcome into the uh, some bonus content here on the Corey Truax Show. We are joined again by Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello there, sir. Hello. Some things we couldn't get to on the radio show, and because the podcast audience dwarfs the radio audience it's worth doing anyway uh, so i'm gonna let you lead um we want to talk a little bit more about racism in the united states in where we are in the modern day in 2018 it's all yours sir so i think the first thing that it's important to recognize is uh de facto segregation exists largely today you know the black community and the white community is largely divided and there's not always a ton of interaction there so what that means um for white people and our responsibility as a group when most of black people and ethnic minorities are saying they experience racism, we don't see most of their lives and we don't interact with them anywhere close to enough just because of how the world exists. So I think that what we have to do is examine that critically, try and find out about it, see why they have that experience and try really hard not to minimize it. And um, I think another key here is that we have set up a system in place and whether or not you define racism as a power structure that benefits certain races over others, um, that's the way that most liberals are talking about it. So it's important to recognize that when we say racism exists, we're not saying that you know, you're racist, that you that you hate black people or anything like that. That's not the conversation. And I think we need to move away from that to just talking about what system have we set up that is just running that we're not really aware of because we don't interact with it enough. You know, the, the left, the left leaning mind, there's a lot of things I could I could say that I would want to critique about it. Things I think it values to literal values too much. One thing you said at the very beginning of that, I would critique my own side. We don't seem to value empathy at all. The idea of just stopping and thinking, how does that person see that? I wonder if I could feel that way. It is so, I mean, I think people get on my side get mad when I encourage them. Could you consider what it would be like to be a 25-year-old black guy? Just, just think about how the world looks at you sometimes. And the response is visceral. It is, well, if they wouldn't, they're like, all right, we've already lost. You haven't even tried. Right. Like the American mind, especially on my side, we don't even try to think about what it might be like to not be ourselves, to come from another perspective. Have you found any, I think I've found a slightly effective way to explain white privilege to white people. Have you, have you, do you have anything on that? Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize linguistic differences that we're talking about, you know. Um, I think that one thing that's important to recognize is that we're all racist. You know, I remember I was asked one time, and, and just say that, I'm racist, we're all racist, you know, and, and change, you know, the one of the biggest problems about it is is the good-bad binary. Here we go, I found, I found my train of thought. So yes. <laughs> the good-bad binary, which is basically that if you're a racist, you're a bad person. And so I think when, when white people hear racism, we go, no, racism is what white supremacists do. That's what the KKK does. That's those visceral images of people getting beaten up when they were fighting for their civil rights. That that's racism. And so when we, that's what we've associated it with. And so when we hear this word racism and start to have ourselves associated with it, we have this visceral response, I think, because we think we're being associated with this, this violence and evil and obvious, obvious malignancy that's been perpetrated. So I think the first thing that you have to establish is what precisely are we talking about and what is our relation to it? Yeah, ra racial, uh, you know, in Christian circles, actually, we, we've often started saying racialism to try to get people to understand we're not saying that you're an alt-right racist who actually thinks bad things regularly about non-white people, but that you might have a preference you don't know about. Right. That, that, is, that is naturally happening in all races. There's, a, there's just a preference to be with like uh, people that look like you. That's right. Just, and, and culturally like you. Here's the method I have used. Maybe you've heard it, because uh, I swear to you, I promise, I didn't take this from someone else, <laughs> but I end up hearing people say it and I was like maybe I didn't come up with it maybe someone else did and I didn't know um, I try to explain white privilege to people by calling it right privilege so here we go <laughs> you, are you right or left handed? Uh, right handed okay so we, we right handed people we the 90% 
we grew up in a world that was made for us. The desks we sat down in school were made for us. You ever seen a left-handed person struggle at school? Uh, the, the literally the human the English language in most languages are written right to left. We're fine with that. The left-handed person it smudges their hands because it goes across the page. Le- they actually have to get left-handed scissors. They have to get left-handed things because just the world was made for us. Right. That that was the natural thing in which we operate. In the same way that the left-handed and what the left-handed person uh, wasn't discriminated against necessarily directly, but the world didn't. Assume it, then assume right. of them. And I think it's been somewhat effective. I've been able to say that to some white folks and go, oh, yeah. that's what you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the world was made to make me feel comfortable. To yeah. make you feel comfortable. Have you heard that before, that illustration? Uh, no, I haven't, but I, I like it. I think it's a good one. Use that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I th- the, if, if our goal is any kind of r- racial unity, I know the, the political trope is bring people together, but just trying to get to peace. I have interest in peace. We just try to inter- understand each other. Uh, that And so I think it's a productive conversation. For uh, sure. That we just recognize, are, are, do I hate black people? No. Do you probably make some assumptions about yourself and others that might not be helpful to everybody? Yeah, probably so. That's, that's, that's normal. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that we all have subliminal bias, and you know, and that's important to recognize. So they've done psychological studies. You know, we're more likely to associate... Um, you know, white people with uh, positive words and black people with negative words. That's just, that's a, a empirical fact that we've discovered. Now, the interesting thing, because we all have a preference for our own. Now, the interesting thing is that we do live in a white majority society and black people have internalized that as well. So black people are actually more likely to associate negative words with other black people. So there's certainly a likeness aspect to it, but there's just also an aspect of being the majority um, and also being in power. We have mostly white politicians disproportionately. We have mostly white directors weaving our cultural stories. You know, we have mostly white CEOs. They're, they're creating the stories and the narratives and the structures that determine our society. And that's naturally from a white perspective. And so inevitably, um, racism is going to occur. And even if there were no racism, I think it's important to recognize the perpetuating effects of poverty and the fact that there are a disproportionate um, number of African Americans in poverty because of coming out from the system of slavery. And so those aspects have to be addressed because wealth perpetuates and we see, you know, black people, they're just not getting richer. They're staying for the most part, they're staying, there are exceptions, but they're staying at the same rate. And that is directly because of not the choices they made, but the choices we made on their behalf for the most part. Yeah, it's generational poverty. Right. That's, it's very difficult to come out of. I mean, one of the pushbacks I get often is, well, you gotta, you gotta have a culture that stops encouraging so much single parenthood, and you gotta have dads stay around, and you have to. And I would often say, you know, that all of that could be true at the same time. That yes, right. it would, it would be great. Uh, we could fix some things culturally in the black community on dads staying around, single parenthood, drug use, whatever. At the exact same time, that doesn't negate systemic things, and all of those things can be true at the same time. I, I find folks uh, fifty and older have trouble with this. Um, maybe it's a little older than that, that uh, once you have, I feel like once you've said, well, systemically, there's been some disadvantage that you, that you have given up uh, individual responsibility, that there's no individual responsibility. Right. Well, I'm not saying that. They can simultaneously exist. It, but for some folks in their brain, not true. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Only one can be true. Uh, that's all I got on that. Any other for you? Yeah. Do you mind if I just shotgun fire some examples Absolutely. of racism? We're podcasting just, now. Yeah, I just want to say this quickly because I think it's important because some people are like, what is institutional racism? Where is it? I don't see it. Where does it exist? So um, in schools, for example, it's uh, black kids are more likely to get suspended or expelled from doing the same things. And education is integral to progress. And so that's a big problem. Uh, the criminal justice system, you know, there's a lot of debate about police shootings, but we do know empirically that black people are more likely to get stopped. They're more likely to get detained for a crime. They're more likely to have a higher sentence for the same crime. And they're more likely to um, get charged with a higher crime for doing the same action. It's also the case that in the workplace, people who have black sounding names, names that are typically, you know, um, given to black people are less likely to get hired. It is also the case that if, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's just the perpetual effects of poverty, but also they've checked, you know, if you divide, um, income level into 20% brackets, black people are way more likely to fall. Even if they're in the top 20%, they're way yep. more likely to go down at every bracket to a lower level bracket, which is a clear example, not just of perpetual poverty, but clear racism in the system. So I just wanted to say that to establish that there are a lot of examples of systemic racism that I don't think are brought up. And I, if I can critique college campuses real fast. Sure. Um, 
I think that an issue, and uh, I'm so I do research, and one of the problems in psychological research is that. In psychology, you're talking about metaphors. For example, you have, you know, ego depletion, which is that self-control is a finite resource. And um, a professor comes up with that idea. He understands that it's a metaphor, but then he doesn't take care to teach his research students very well. And so we have second wave uh, generation of students who are studying ego depletion as though it's a real thing, when it's not. It's just a metaphor. Um, I bring this up because I think what happens is you have a culture of very intelligent leftists on college campuses the first people, they have the reasons. They found systemic racism. They know where it exists, and they have this empirical backing. But then they just say it exists, and when you're in a culture where your ideas are always supported and you don't have to come up with reasons and you're not challenged, I think we have a lot of these, you know, um, what we call the campus left, people who were just ranting and shouting, but when asked to come up with an empirical example, can't come up with one and then makes, you know, leftists just look like crazy people yeah. ranting about problems that don't exist. Um, and that's just kind of my personal theory on why I think that occurs frequently. Yeah, the um, one of the hardest things for anyone who's genuinely ideological who has stopped and thought about why they think what they think is that other people will use the similar words like they will identify themselves your ideology, and they've not spent any time on it. They've not done the work. They've not done the rigorous work of why they think what they think, and they make you look bad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it's not uh, it's not healthy. Um, okay, so this last thing for me. I, I'm not a America hater by any stretch, although I have been accused of this. Uh, I I genuinely am grateful for where I live. That that I get to live in a place of general stability has a lot of liberty comparatively to other places. I think there's a, a strain happening in, a, in the U.S. that is switching from patriotism to nationalism. And the, the way I've said it on my, my show before is I always identified America as a set of ideas. So they were specifically separation of powers, uh, that states and federal government should have different roles, um, and that the Congress, the judiciary, and the executive should all do different things and hold each other accountable. Uh, also coming from the Magna Carta, that powerful people have to follow the same rules, uh, that we are capitalists. This was uh, the idea of, uh, that there's m m maximum freedom, that we're going to have as much freedom as we can without people hurting each other, and then the rule of law, that we aren't ruled by people, we're ruled by the laws, and the people can be transient, but the laws are ruled. And I think there's a group of people that don't think any of that anymore. They think America is a people group that is defined against the Russians or the Japanese or the Chinese or the Mexicans. We are just a... We, we don't believe anything. There's no principle there. We just got to be for our clan. That I shouldn't have used that word, not clan. We got to be for <laughs> our, because there's, there's baggage to it. Right. We got to be for our tribe. Let's go there. For sure. Are you seeing that too, and does it trouble you? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think it's scary because that is, those are those are the seeds of fascism. I'm not saying we're close to fascism, but it, it's it's an integral idea to America. Um, in Federalist Paper Number 10, Madison talks about, yes. we need a plurality of ideas. The way that we're going to pr uh, prevent tyranny of the majority from any one idea, um, especially one you know, nationality from dominating, is to have a plurality of ideas that contradict each other so like we can engage and produce you know, good legislation and no one group gains control. Um, once disagreement becomes unpatriotic, you're putting an enormous amount of power into the hands of the government and the people who are in power that can control the narratives of what does patriotism mean and what does nationalism mean. So I think we have to be very careful once we start saying that opinion is un-American and not uh, engaging with it on an intellectual level. Yeah, it, it makes me nervous about where we might be heading. Uh, I, if, if you end up not having a thought on this, I'll edit this out. Um, one last thing for me, I promise, for the evening. I had a discussion here on uh, social media here recently about theories of interpreting the Constitution. So originalism versus uh, thinking about it in a more modern context. Is this something you've thought about much? Yeah, some. Okay. So I'm going to give you my position. You tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, I am a, what's called a textualist and an originalist. Those are two different things. Originalist being, I think you actually should use the Federalist Papers and then the notes on the convention from Madison to, to determine what does the Constitution mean, and what did it mean in 1787 when they wrote it in Philadelphia? That's the principle that we use today. And then you're a text. I'm also a textualist. What does the law say? What do the words mean, and what do they intend to mean, even if it's outside the Constitution? And there were some folks uh, that thought that was insane, and that you just uh, you, you got to do what a judge should be looking for: what is just, not that which is constitutional. And sometimes what is just is going to be different than what's constitutional. So do justice, not constitution. 
that's where I sit. I'm an originalist and textualist. So I think there, I agree with you completely. I think that what uh, the person you were talking about, they're conflating the roles of the judiciary and the legislative branch. Yes. Now, I will say, um, the Constitution was written, you know, 200 years ago. It was written by a bunch of old, rich, white people. All those are true. They have a limited perspective. They were also remarkably intelligent and yeah. spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about what they were doing. So all that has to be taken into consideration. Should the Constitution be changed sometimes? Yes. Certainly. Should we have new interpretations? Absolutely. But that's very different from having a judicial branch that starts being a legislative branch because based on its interpretation of justice, it is the judicial branch's responsibility, I think, to not just interpret, you know, because um, bringing in scripture, language is has lots of layers and it's metaphorical. And I think there's a problem when you just go word for word that you don't really capture the meaning, you know, of yeah. what it means in any document, you know, in any, and I think that includes the constitution. It's important to say, well, this language is equivocal and look at other documents. So I yes. think that's important as well. And so it is the judicial branch's responsibility to act in accordance to the constitution. And that's important because people have very different views of justice. The reason we have a constitution and we're one of the first nations to have a constitution is to preserve liberty and to preserve justice. Um, and for the longevity of a state because most empires fall. And so this is an attempt to keep our ideals and our nation going by having a core document that we return to, to look to why we were founded and what our purpose is. And so I think that, that, that's very important for the sustainability of the United States. I'll listen back later to make sure I don't think I could disagree when a word you just said. I also, this is rare for me, I don't think I could have improved upon it. Usually somebody says something, I go, I could have said that better. <laughs> well, that, man, that was good. Well done, sir. All right, so this is, we're over an hour of content, you spoiled people <laughs> out there on the podcast. Uh, so I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for doing this again, man. Great talking to you. I'm going to have to call it a night and go get some sleep. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with another new edition, maybe some more bonus stuff later on. Until next time, peace and love.